0: Last week on the podcast, we spent some time talking about how, over the years, we've been experimenting with a games-based approach to our training in basketball, and this week, JP, we want to try to build an argument that these principles and theories don't just apply to basketball, but they can be used to train athletes in just about any sport. In fact, I'm reading a book right now called The MVP Machine, and it talks a lot about how Trevor Bauer, who now pitches for the reds but sort of made a name for himself at the cleveland indians went about his training very differently from his peers in baseball and in the book it references a study that was done at polytech state university in california on the use of variability in batting practice Now, last week we talked about how important it was for players to have an ever-changing environment and different problems to solve so in the study they took 30 junior college baseball players and they lined them up for batting practice in two groups. The first group went about their business in a very traditional way. They faced 15 fastballs and then 15 curveballs, and then they'd hit against 15 changeups. But the second group went about the same number of pitches. They still saw 45 pitches in their set, but those three types of pitches were randomized. They might see two fastballs and then a changeup and then a curveball, etc. And after training in this way over a period of time, they look back at their in-game statistics to see if their quality at bats or their quality contact in their at bats had improved. And sure enough, the group that used this variable training improved their quality of at bats significantly, at least according to the statistics that the researchers looked at. Now in the book, Trevor Bauer explains some of his training methods in this way. He says, it turns out the quickest way to acquire a new skill is to force yourself to do that skill with a constantly changing environment, implement, or activity. If you can vary one of those every single time with the same goal, then your body acquires that skill a lot more quickly. A couple of ways that Bauer would do this in his training was to use weighted balls in his bullpen sessions. Instead of using the same baseball every time, it might weigh just a little bit more, just a little bit less. and. His theory was that that engages your mind on how to find the feel for that pitch much more effectively than just doing the same thing over and over again. Now this week, we're gonna have a conversation with Sean Mizka, who applies these same theories of variability and problem solving to training NFL players.
1: You're listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. Every week in around 30 minutes, we're giving you strategies and tools for you to grow as a leader and build your culture. We know the reason why most teams struggle, and that is because they have a dysfunctional culture. This leaves coaches frustrated with entitled players, losing seasons, and toxic environments. And at Thrive On Challenge, we believe the silver bullet is a transformational culture. We help coaches to create and sustain transformational cultures so they can strengthen relationships, raise standards, and inspire others to make an impact. To learn more about our workshops, retreats, and mentorship program, go to thriveonchallenge.com. You can also get the coaching notes PDFs for every coaching culture episode by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. You're listening to episode 129, Training NFL Players Using a Games-Based Approach with our guest, Sean Mizka. So as we were preparing to do this Games-Based Approach podcast, we actually, I actually started some research around a year ago. And I was thinking, man, I know a lot of coaches out there in, in the basketball world and in soccer uh, and some of those other invasion sports that use a Games-Based Approach, but I had never heard of someone using it in a sport like American football. And so I reached out to the Twitter world and I said, does anybody know – of anybody using games-based approach to learning when it comes to football. And I got a resounding response from many people that I had to check out, Sean Miska. And so that's how Sean Miska has come to the podcast today. Sean has served primarily as a performance advisor and movement skill acquisition coach for the NFL players since 2008, working with approximately 12 players each year. He has partnered with five NFL All-Pro selections and 12 NFL Pro Bowl team members. Now let's get right into our conversation with Sean Miska. So Sean, one of the questions that I have for you early on right now is, is I was reading one of your articles that you wrote about kind of your philosophies on what many coaches might call a games-based approach. I like that you call a constraints-led approach. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, but you share the story of an NFL tight end, starting NFL tight end, who's also playing on the punt team. And due to some of the training practices that he was kind of going through that season on the punt team, he was kind of ineffective or not really prepared to to be effective on, on the punt team because he maybe hadn't acquired the skill set needed to tackle, for instance. Can you kind of share a little bit more with our listeners that story of this, this player? Because I think it does a really good job of illustrating sometimes the breakdown between what we're trying to teach our athletes within a practice session and then what actually ends up happening. Yeah,
2: no doubt. Uh, And I like where the question is headed there. I think, gentlemen, that what we find anytime that we use the words game-based approach or constraints-led approach or teaching games for understanding or any of these condition game type of ideas, many times the people on the other side of the fence will bring up Uh, this rather poignant point that they believe kind of contradicts what it is that we're saying. And they'll say, well, just go play the game and you'll learn all of the skills that you'll need if you just throw them out in the game. And when they hear that we're using a games-based approach or a constraints-led approach, they often think we're doing nothing but throwing the athletes to the wolves and allowing them to play the game. But really what we're trying to do or what we should do is design learning environments that, contains snippets of the game, that the environment looks, feels, behaves, and acts like the game will, that it has or contains problems, which then present information, which then present affordances or opportunities to act. And so it allows us to maybe find where those players are weak, where they may have gaps within their skill set, much of like what you're talking about there, JP, with, with the tight end that I'm referring to. That oftentimes, obviously, for those in the basketball world or sports that exist outside of American football, many people think that if, well, if you're a football player, you can just tackle and chase and catch and those types of things, right? And when I say catch, I mean catch another human being. But if you're an offensive skill player, many times, at least for the last number of years, you haven't actually practiced many of those tasks. So the environment that you've been placed in, if you just go play the game, doesn't actually present those same problems right so many times at least to last in the national football league you get thrown into doing certain things and that's why obviously what this tight end even though he was a a starting tight end in the league he was still expected to be on both punt and kick cover teams which again sounds um somewhat um maybe uh i I don't want to use the the wrong words here in case anyone from that respective team are listening but it, it it's just doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, right? (laughs) To put a person who's hired to catch a football and to block other human beings now to go chase someone down the field. But in any event, this was part of his roles and responsibilities. But when I look back at the film, because when we sat down at the end of the season, and this is a player who had been with me for a number of years, at the end of every year, players and I sit down, we break down each and every game that that they played in, the problems that they found there, and then the gaps that they had in solving those respective problems. And what we found is that he was obviously very ineffective and inefficient at the act of bringing someone down uh, in the open field, just because he wasn't really practicing it. And and I was focused primarily in previous years on some of the things that go into playing tight end at the highest levels, uh, running routes, obviously facing movement problems that, Um, of different coverages and and different positions of players uh, blocking demand, certainly, but I really was undervaluing his role uh, as a chaser and a tackler. And then we, we got to the end of the year and we started looking through some of these weaknesses. And I started talking to him about that. And he's like, Sean, I saw very, very few opportunities in practice all season long. and, And and we went through and actually counted the reps. We watched the practice film and it was literally less than a handful of times that he got to chase a guy down in practice in this similar situation. And then he'd get thrown out on an NFL Sunday and be expected to do it. Well, it just so happens that a few of those times that I mentioned in that blog post that you're referring to JP, um, he missed a tackle or missed an assignment or responsibility in the game situation that then led to big gains. Uh, in fact, a couple of touchdowns. And so when I really look at it, if I would just allow him to just go play the game as sometimes people would say, well, if we do these rote repetitions of activities or, or trying to repeat a perfect rehearsal of a movement pattern or these cone drills where maybe things are decoupled from, the actual problem that is presented to the player. And then we just expect them to be thrown back out into the game to go play there. And then it's going to materialize or emerge. Like I think we're doing our athletes a disservice. So as I mentioned in that blog post, then is is we started to maybe prioritize all the things that went into that and design or manipulate constraints around those problems to allow it to be facilitated more frequently to be facilitated in a way that again looks feels and acts like it will when he faces it on when he would have to face it on a Sunday
1: I think traditionally we also like you mentioned the cone piece I think if a guy's struggling to make the tackles I think if I was a coach 10 years ago I'd be like all right gonna get the tackling dummies out and let's just have them practice this tackling form we
2: feel that sport does nothing but a problem-solving activity where movements or movement skills are utilized to solve those respective problems, right? And so if we view everything as a problem, then we find that the problem is living and it's breathing, right? It's not something that is sterile like a blocking dummy or a tackling dummy or a bunch of cones set up on a field or a court.
0: So, Sean, when you're thinking about taking someone who has trained to be a tight end and moving them to the punt team. And we're describing sort of this dynamic situation, this problem that they have to solve, right? Which is a football is being kicked 60 yards down the field. They have to sprint, find a moving target, elude other players who are trying to keep them from getting to the target, track the football, contain the player that is moving in coordination with other players. That It certainly speaks to that dynamic environment that, he probably hasn't experienced if he wasn't getting very many reps in practice. So when you start to to create that problem or recreate that scenario for the player, can you just kind of walk us through a little bit of that, that process for you of how you start to simulate or create that learning environment for the player?
2: And so when I set that up, um, I'm trying to facilitate these perceptions, cognitions and actions to be coupled so they interact in ways that they will when they have to solve those problems now to do that um, basically what i'm looking at here is not telling them how they have to solve the problem but instead allowing it to be facilitated or to emerge and so oftentimes i'm setting up players at different positions or places on the field allowing then that player who's part of the quote-unquote drill I don't like the use of the word drill instead I like the use of the word problem or learning activity uh, as would probably be reflected in many of my answers today as well but what we do is allow that individual to sort of be presented with this problem and when we're the, when they're presented with this problem they're going to have to organize many degrees of freedom of their own system in accordance to the many degrees of freedom that are existing that you mentioned there, Nate. And I know some of that sounds really scientific and really complex or complicated to some, but what we really are talking about here is some of these interactive relationships and the processes that take place as they interact with one another. So that individual, such as that tight end, Finding the ball first and foremost, using that as specifying information, because where that ball is going uh, typically is where he may have to go or he has to organize his behavior oriented around. And then finding other specifying information within that problem as well, the returner, or then maybe there's more primary information that he has to interact with with as well, which you brought up or mentioned there, Nate, which is maybe people who are entrusted with blocking him for that respective punt returner, right? Or kick returner. And so what we look at here, gentlemen, is is layers of this information, layers of these micro problems. And what I'm trying to do, Nate, to your question is set up these micro problems to be part of a bigger global macro problem that he has to solve, which is bring the ball carrier down right at a, at a base level that's his base intention but he's going to have some of these sub phases of problems existing as well with the players that he meets in response to that the traffic he has to evade um, in doing so and then what he has to do in those respective interactions as well so this example just happens to be a really good one to illustrate how we may look at solving those respective problems or presenting that problem to the player to facilitate hopefully a global movement skill to emerge.
0: You know, Sean, I love that example because I think sometimes when we have these conversations with coaches, they're not sure what variables can actually be manipulated when they're doing their reps or their drills. And, you know, even as a basketball guy who watches a lot of football, I think about a punt coverage situation You know, there's tons of variables there that coaches could manipulate when they're doing their practices. I mean, you think about tracking the football, whether it's headed to the sideline or the middle of the field. You know, how long the hang time is, how far the punt is that they have to cover. You think about the players that are trying to block you and prevent you from tackling the ball carrier. They might start right in front of you. They might start off the line of scrimmage. You might have to block them first. There's all kinds of different kind of, as you described, sort of these micro variables that could be manipulated to change that context and create a different problem for your players to solve really on every repetition.
2: But really what it is, is allowing the, those slices or snippets of the game, those micro problems to be presented with the athlete frequently. And so if we have an athlete who might exist at a lower level of mastery, maybe they don't exist at the NFL level we might not be able to present um, three, four, or five local problems, micro-problems presented one by one by one to that athlete. We may have to part that out then and have them just solve one problem. But we have to ensure that that first problem, say trying to get by an initial um, blocker or defender or um, just tracking a ball carrier in space without having a blocker on you, you have to make sure that those micro-problems also will be representative of the way that it will happen or occur in a game and so now people um, who might be trying to use some of those things the only thing i would tell individuals is when you first start wading in the water with some of these ideas is just check back to the game like because you're going to want to work back from the game to ensure that the activities or if you want to call them drills but i prefer to call them activities or problems if they will behave the same way as they will when they're presented with it in the game.
0: Yeah, and I think we see that, you know, in basketball all the time where, you know, that, that phrase perception-action coupling obviously is foundational to understanding this type of training because, you know, we talk about decision-making all the time, and you have to be able to simulate an, an environment that's similar to what they're going to see on a game night, right? And be mm-hmm. able to practice perceiving, again, not just the defender in front of them, but the help side defender and the relationship of space to their other defenders and their teammates and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. be able to process what they see and then make the correct decision. And one of the things that you know comes up a lot in your work here is and I think speaks to the idea of presenting problems or challenges for players to interact with is it, you describe it as a search process. Yeah, I, want I love it. To sort of Explain what that means and how you lead an athlete through that.
2: That perception could be all of our sensory systems and the layers of information that we're bringing in or connecting to that will serve to then guide our movement actions that we organize, right? So this perception then becomes uh, the human movement system's way of maintaining purposeful contact with the peculiar problem it intends to solve. Where are my teammates? Where are the opponents? What are my intentions? Uh, What am I aiming to do here? And I love that you brought up the idea of search there because I I kind of think of the athlete as sort of being this detective out in the world trying to find the information and trying to find the opportunities for them to act. Because what we find, and if you hear enough people talk about perception action coupling, you'll hear the words by the late JJ Gibson, we perceive to act and we act to perceive. And it becomes this coupled type of relationship within our movement system. We're always perceiving, we're always acting, they're always interwoven and intertwined with one another. And it's this constant circular causality that exists between the two. I would propose that this search process is the individual sort of trying to organize their movement solutions authentically, individually, and on the fly, um, and allow it to emerge organically. And so we might be able to tell the players where to look, but maybe not tell the player what they should see. But to sort of summarize uh, my answer to your really great question there, Nate, is a guy by the name of Nikolai Bernstein, who, if if you really doubt in any motor behavior research at all, you're gonna hear him utilize the words way back in the 60s of repetition without repetition. And what that really meant is that practice shouldn't be rote rehearsal, at least to Bernstein's view, but instead, it should be more of a repetition without repetition, which meant that we presented problems to the individual that allowed them to change processes within their solution. So they were presented with the opportunity to not repeat the means of a solution again and again in rote rehearsal, but instead to repeat the whole problem solving process again and again and continue to change that. And he actually used the words a search process there uh, as one would find their ways to kind of interweave, um, interconnect uh, and how those processes of perception, cognition, and action will interrelate with one another and integrate to form this whole movement solution. Great question though, Nate.
0: Sean, I love that phrase, repetition without repetition. I think so often when we think about drilling our fundamental skills in whatever the sport might be, I think the mistake that we often make, I know that I made earlier in my career, was that I was repeating the wrong thing. It isn't the players don't need repetitions. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that instead of isolating some of those skills apart from the game, in other words, just standing and playing catch without any defense present, for example, we want to get our repetitions in a game context. And I know in a lot of your writing, you give coaches some guidance as to how to start doing that if you haven't done something like that before. And you reference three areas of constraints, manipulating the organism, task constraints, and environmental constraints. Now, the first one is is difficult for us to do. When you talk about the organism, you're talking about the human being, right? I'm not going to be able to sprinkle some pixie dust over my players and all of a sudden make them taller or faster or stronger instantly in a practice. Although, I do believe that there are ways that you can do that. For example, we would manipulate our defenders by letting them use pool noodles to make their arms longer try to swat passes away. Or uh, in basketball, for example, if we wanted to work on our transition defense, we couldn't make our players faster, but we would just say, you don't have to dribble the ball. You get a rebound, you can run with it until you get to the front court just to make them faster. So sometimes there are ways that you can manipulate that. But I know you wanted to talk about specifically task constraints and environmental constraints, and how coaches can start to use those to shape their practices.
2: In many times, uh, we already do constrain the second one, which would be the task constraints. And those task constraints are essentially, like you said, rules of the game, maybe the size of the ball, maybe um, the size of the, the goal or the, the actual response that we'd have because of the amount of opponents. And so all of a sudden we have a lot of task constraints that are the easiest thing for us to manipulate. Uh, Things such as spatial and temporal relationships, so meaning spacing and timing of opponents, the amount of opponents, these are really easy ways to utilize a constraints uh, manipulation in order to see what that athlete can do and where maybe their challenge point might exist because obviously we can constrain space by putting more individuals within that space, or we can even um, constrain time, of course, by doing the same, just even changing positions of players to be more unpredictable or in places where maybe there's a little bit of messiness. So we can utilize the Bernstein idea of repetition without repetition there where no two problems are really ever the same. And we can manipulate task constraints to do exactly that. So the easiest way to do it, Nate, is simply to change the where the opponent is, how many opponents are there, and what the opponents are aiming to do, and then allowing that player to face that across a series of repetitions.
0: And, Sean, there are so many examples of this in, in other sports as well. When you're talking about changing those constraints of space, you know, soccer players will will play – small sided games in a, a very constrained amount of space You a know, futsal, for example, where they're playing in alleys that are only 40 yards long instead of a full field. Um, we play in our basketball practices lots of disadvantaged drills where we're playing three offensive players against four defensive players or we're changing the goal for our offensive players rather than always having to score. Sometimes we just have them try to get to the other end of the court without turning the ball over. So there's a lot of different things that you can do with those task constraints. Now, one of the challenges, I think, when you start talking about environmental constraints, which I know you're going to get into here in a second, is how can I change the actual physical environment that our basketball players are experiencing every day in practice? Because the gym is more or less the same every day. The court stays the same size. The rims are always 10 feet tall. As I thought about that after reading some of your stuff, I thought, maybe even just manipulating the amount of air in the basketball, you know, a a ball that bounces a little bit more or a little bit less changes something about the environment. Or when we would go to the state tournament, you know, we always tried to get on a a larger floor because that's what you'll play at at the state tournament or get to a gym where the shooting background is different because you're going to experience something different as you're going further into the playoffs. And I know you've done some really creative things with your football players to change their environment, and it isn't always just the physical environment that they're playing in.
2: And so, in my world, we go outside when it's raining. We want the athlete to be placed into rain, snow, sleet, sun, hot, cold. You kind of, you kind of get the drill there. Um, grass, turf, etc. Well, you're probably thinking to yourself as a basketball coach. Well, Sean, the basketball floor is going to feel pretty similar. Um, you know, if we're here, if we're home, or if we're away or if we're here or there, right? But oftentimes aspects of the environment must must go much further than that, such as who's watching? What are the intentions of that observer who's watching? You know, like if you're coaching a, a A boys basketball team there's probably a pretty good chance that if a a group of girls walks through the the gym it's going to change the way that they solve those respective problems right like this isn't it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure some of these things out right or maybe even if their parents are there that will change the way that they go solve those problems or how they aim to act in those problems you know and i kind of stumbled on the importance of the environment uh, now what would be three going on four years ago, I had a player who was an NFL quarterback who was returning from a very, very uh, career-threatening type of injury, and he was getting ready to come off of injured reserve. And we had tested him, or I had tested him in our environment uh, across a number of different situations, a really wide variety of situations. And I was feeling very confident with his movement solutions, and I thought to myself, well, what more can I do here to test it. I use the environment uh, with different surfaces, field turf to grass, um, this grass field to that grass field uh, again, rain and, and, and uh, sunny and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me that the last time that this player had been on an NFL football field, he was completely healthy and then he got injured in practice. And so the last time that he was on the field and his family watched him he was the person that they had known him to be. But then over the course of the, the 12 months leading up to this moment that I'm speaking to, he wasn't quite the same, right? Like he had to adapt in certain ways in order to even play football again. And his, I realized that his family had never even seen him play um, since the injury. And so knowing that he was going to get called up, if you will, if you want to think about it like that, to be brought off of injured reserve to then play again, I actually invited his family to come watch him practice without him knowing. And all of a sudden all those movement skills that I thought were really functional and stabilized, they all went to heck. Because he saw his family walk in and this whirlwind of emotions occurred and he had to get a basically accustomed to dealing with those emotions because it didn't matter if he was accustomed to performing in front of 70,000 people. The seven people he cared about the most were now present watching him move for the first time since his injury.
0: You know, Sean, I was just having a conversation with one of the coaches in our mentorship program about how they can add some variability to their practices. And this particular coach had a couple of injured players that are out for the rest of the year and they can function, they just can't play. And we talked about how even having those players coaching in a live situation in practice, for example, in basketball, if they were doing an end game situation, one of the injured players could coach one team, the other one could coach the other. And in a way, that's changing the environment, just like you're talking about. Or those injured players, I suggested, could even be the officials for some of their live play, which we all know that officiating can be one of those variables that changes from game to game. and while we might not be able to simulate or bring people in, as you did in the example you just shared there, even practicing with crowd noise simulators or louder music you know, to force players to communicate differently, all of those things are available at our disposal to be able to even change the environment a little bit to make our players adapt and adjust.
1: Question for you, Sean. You probably have seen plenty of high school, college practices, professional practices out there over the, over the last 10 years. If you could just say, hey, here's one thing I'd like to see coaches use less of in their practice or training, and I'd like them to replace it with something else. What's that one thing that you just shake your head at going, oh, my gosh, you know, like this is this is ineffective. We need to move forward with something else.
2: Cone drills and agility ladders kind of lumped into one. (laughs) And I would advise that people kind of think about some of the things that I talked about throughout the course of the call already does the problem that is being presented to the athlete look, feel, behave, and act like it will out on a basketball Friday night or an, you know, a high school football Friday night or, or an NFL Sunday. And the answer is in most of these cases, no, it doesn't actually resemble it at all. And I'm not saying that you have to throw them into the messiness all the time and have them exist, always solving the most complex of problems. But what I am saying is that there has to be a problem for them to solve. There has to be information that's living and breathing for them to interact with. There has to be decisions that are unpredictable that should be made. And then they should have to, as an athlete, try to organize their actions to adapt in response to that, which what is in in front of them in that environment and in that task.
1: Yeah. Well, Sean, as we're kind of wrapping up, I I love that uh, piece there. I I think, my one other big question, and this is one of the reasons we brought you here on the podcast because, you know, we don't really necessarily talk about, you know, skill development or skill acquisition very often here on the podcast, but is what it, the impact is on the player, their experience, you know, for what have you learned from working with players? I mean, are they enjoying, I mean, obviously you've got some, they, they, they believe in it. You've got a uh, really impressive client, uh, client base there, but you know, in my experience—it really using this discovery process, searching process, using questions to help them kind of figure it out—it kind of engages them and improves that that, that experience. And they're, they're if you're trying to develop a player-led program, it it works in that, in that sense too, for just to, to to change your 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 training practices.
2: Yeah, and I, I think you bring up a really good point there, JP, because when I made the change to utilizing more of a games-based, more of a constraints-led approach, a more representative task design. I was sort of worried or concerned that players were going to abandon ship because they weren't used to feeling that uncomfortable all the time. And then what I realized once I started utilizing it and the players who bought in, and they didn't have to buy in that much because as soon as they faced these problems, they're like, wait a minute, I know this feeling. What I also realized, it allowed each individual to have more of an authentic, creative, uh, autonomous type of uh, responsibility and role within this partnership, right? It wasn't me dictating that these were the right ways to behave. It was like, listen, we're going to partner here together, and we're going to just set up this problem. We're going to see how you solve it, and we're going to determine what you may be able to do. But what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Would you like to feel or try later on?
1: All right. That's it for our jam packed episode with Sean Miska. If you want to connect with him, the easiest way he is recommended is by Twitter at Movement Miyagi. Um, also, he has his own brand, Emergent Movement. Uh, the website, I'm putting a link to that in the episode details, this podcast, and also the coaching notes, which you can get at thriveonchallenge.com by subscribing there. Uh, You'll get the coaching notes every week for this podcast. Lastly, if you really want to learn more about this games-based approach to coaching, uh, Nate is putting on a basketball workshop on April 4th in Chicago alongside Mark Cassio. Uh, On April 5th in Chicago, we will be doing a coaching culture workshop, which is open to you and your coaching staff. We'd love to see you there. Go to thriveonchallenge.com forward slash public workshop register today. Also, I'll drop a link in the episode details as well.